So we're continuing our look at sin, the Savior, and salvation, and this is going to be where we're going to camp out for, for many months because there is so much to say in God's Word about the great subject of salvation. And so uh, what we're going to do tonight is start going through a number of key issues, key doctrines, key terms uh, in the broader subject of salvation. And um, normally, if this were a Bible college or seminary class, I would kind of rush through this in one course, just, I mean, one uh, class session going through what I call key soteriological terms. Remember, soterios is the Greek word save or salvation, and sozo is save. And so that the soteriology is the study of salvation. Um, but since we've got time and we, we have some good interaction, good discussion, I'm going to kind of dedicate each week to a different a theme or topic, maybe two or three as we go on, but tonight we're going to just dedicate it to one. But I'm calling this uh, kind of approach the wells of salvation, and I get that from uh, Isaiah chapter 12. And, um, you know, I, I, Isaiah prophesied that uh, on the day that Messiah comes back, the second coming, to establish his kingdom, which we're talking about in our Bible study on Sunday mornings. Uh, which he calls that day in verse 1. We're picking it up here in verse 2, but he, he refers to it as that day, and in the context it's referring to his return. But he says, On that day the remnant who survived the tribulation and entered into the kingdom would praise God, Yahweh, for his, you know, for his unbelievable uh, provision, protection, his comfort. Praise him because he ended his discipline of them. I remember this is the times of the Gentiles that we're in, where Israel is being subject to domination by Gentile nations, going all the way back to Assyria, Babylon, Persia, uh, Greek, uh, Rome. And, uh, and so anyway, we pick it up uh, here in uh, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, shortened form of Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This is again referring to the ultimate end of salvation here, when Christ comes back, makes all things new, and the, you know, the, the world is recreated in sinless perfection. Um, he says, you know, sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things, he goes on in verse 5. This is known in all the earth, verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 12. So the wells of salvation. Water uh, throughout the Bible is a frequent symbol or theme of salvation because, of course, it takes water to survive. It's the building block of, of life. You can't survive uh, without water. And uh, so and, and going back to the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel long before Isaiah, they, of course, had to trust God to provide water even in the midst of uh, the wilderness. And so uh, as we think about this idea of the wells of salvation, we see, as I said, this theme throughout uh, Scripture. If we go to the New Testament, Jesus uh, said, uh, this is the woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal life. So he's using this notion of water as an idea of eternal, a metaphor for eternal life. And then in John chapter 7, in the context, Jesus here is announcing his departure um, 
and he's he's uh, going to talk about the offer of the Holy Spirit for everyone who believed in him. This uh, was the last day. Notice it says in verse 37 there on the last day. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Um, and they were celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles the uh, completion of the agricultural year. The Jews, if you remember, would build little booths or tabernacles, uh, temporary shelters to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt by the hand of God. And that was intended to remind them of God's provision during their days, again, wandering uh, in the desert, in the wilderness. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles begins on the, uh, after the completion of the grain threshing and the pressing of the grapes on the 15th day of Tishri, the Jewish calendar, which equates to late September uh, uh, to, into October, sometime around there. So if you believe in Jesus, what he says here is, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, so if you go back to Isaiah's description, this is the idea here of wells of salvation. In the context, he's talking about the ultimate salvation. But as we're going to see over the next few weeks, there are so many aspects of salvation that are critical for us to understand. Um, terms like atonement, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, regeneration, um, all, all of those types of things. Repentance. How do all those terms relate and what all do they uh, mean uh, adoption family we've talked a lot about family versus fellowship already on Wednesday nights um, but I want to borrow this concept of wells of salvation and look at some of the deep wells some of the blessings of, of our salvation and I want to start with substitutionary atonement and I don't know if we'll get through all of this tonight because as I was kind of going through it I, I kept bringing in different verses and different thoughts that I wanted to make sure and convey and it just grew longer and longer but that's fine. If we need to stretch this particular topic into two weeks, we will. Um, but substitutionary atonement. Let's start with a definition. Jesus paid our sin penalty at the cross. That's the simplest, most succinct way to say it. And uh, substitutionary atonement, it's important to include both words, and I'm going to explain why as we go through this tonight. There are erroneous views of the atonement that basically make Jesus out just to be a good example or someone who sort of set the example for us to follow. But substitutionary atonement, which is what the Bible teaches, reminds us that he took our place, that it was our sin penalty that he paid uh, at the cross. So it all started in the garden after creation, after the fall of man. Notice God said to Adam and Eve, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Die. So death. Death was not a factor in God's creation. God was a creative God, and He created everything perfect, and in particular, man and woman, He created in His image, mankind, the highest pinnacle of creation. So death was not a part of the equation. But it was a possibility. If mankind rebelled against God, chose not to obey God, then death would become a factor. Uh, later on, Paul would explain it this way in Romans. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and notice, and death through sin, in other words, it was because of sin that death became a reality. There was no death before sin. And thus, death spread to all men because all sinned. 
So everyone's a sinner. And that means everyone experiences death. We're going to explain what death means from a biblical perspective. But the testimony of Scripture is very clear on this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes puts it this way. There is not a just man on earth who does not sin. Everybody's a sinner. And true to what God said in Genesis, the wages of that sin is what? Death. Death. Remember what we said. Therefore, through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. So I want to, before we can really appreciate the the concept of substitutionary atonement and what that really all involves, and the the beauty of it, and the deep well of it, we need to define our terms. Remember, death uh, was not something that God created. He created us with free will, and He created us with the potential to die if we chose not to follow His advice, but we brought through sin death into the world, And so we need to understand that term uh, and what death means. So death in Scripture means separation. Death means separation. And there are at least five kinds of death that that relate to human beings anyway in Scripture. And I, excuse me, I, uh, you know, I've taught on this a lot through the years, 32 years now. And I, as I've said many times, and I want to remind you again, theology is a process, not a product. So I always used to be bothered when I was in full-time academics about the, the elderly statesmen, the tenured faculty who would use the same notes, you know, for decades, literally, and basically phone it in every time they had a class. And for me, every class, every new semester, it might have been the 20th time I taught a particular class. I'm re- re-going over my notes, tweaking things, adding new things, changing things, discovering new things every time I get in the Word. And such is the case with this concept of death. Years ago, I had a chart, seven kinds of death in Scripture. In the book that's currently in print, the chart book, the Not By Works chart book, there's a chart with six deaths in Scripture. But as I really went through that again, I thought, you know, really only five of those deal with mankind. The other two kinds of death in Scripture are, are it's, a, it's two additional ways that death, the word, is used in Scripture, but it doesn't really relate to man. One of them we've already looked at, and that has to do with faith. Remember, faith without works is what? Dead. But that's talking about your faith, not, you know, that your faith is not vibrant and living and active and producing good works in you. But in terms of the human being and the human aspect, there's really five uh, kinds of death, and I want to show you this. To illustrate what I mean when I say death means separation. I think this will help you understand what we mean by death. So, obviously there, are, there is spiritual death, which is at the moment of conception now, Romans 5.12, wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. In other words, it's in the blood. It's in our DNA. That's the reason Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Because had he been conceived through normal human means, he his blood would have been tainted with sin too. You don't. Uh, you, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. So sin at conception, and now post Adam and Eve, post fall. Um, the cause of spiritual death again is original sin, and what it means is separation from God spiritually. We were right with God, in unity with God, in, in union, communion with God, I should say. And then sin broke that. And Adam and Eve, like every human being after them, had to respond in faith, trusting God as the only Redeemer to be able to restore 
that relationship. And we see this in Genesis 2, Ephesians 2. I'll show you these in just a moment. But the remedy for spiritual death, separation from God spiritually, is to be born again by faith alone. So we've talked a lot about that one already, regeneration, being adopted into the family of God, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, by faith you're born again, you're, you're made alive. Uh, but the scripture references that speak of spiritual death would be passages like, let's see here, I thought I had this, oh, you know what? Well, I'll just skip ahead. So, uh, here we see, uh, and you he made alive who were dead, talking about us, in our trespasses and sins. And then another passage, John 5, 24. Most assuredly I say to you, just as Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, he's not talking about physical death here. Because the people to whom he's talking were clearly physically alive. But unless they believed in him, they were spiritually dead. And as we just said, when, when you're born, you're born spiritually dead. And if you believe in Christ, you, you then pass from death uh, to life. So that's spiritual death. And then the other one, which I gave you a sneak peek at a second ago inadvertently, is physical death. Now, we can relate to these first two. If you're a believer or a Christian, you've grown up in church, you've studied the Scriptures, you understand that death has at least these two aspects. You can die spiritually. You are born dead spiritually and are made alive by faith. And you can die physically when your heart stops beating and your brain no longer has any brain waves or whatever. Um, and this occurs at physical death. And the cause is the curse of sin. See, because of sin, Adam and Eve ended up dying physically. They never would have had to die physically had sin not entered the world. And this type of death refers to separation of the soul and spirit from the body. So again, you see death meaning separation. So this physical body with its organs and its muscles and its veins and arteries and all of that, at death goes the way of all flesh, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But our soul and spirit, the real us, never loses consciousness. What you're looking at right now is not the real JB. You're looking at the tent that JB happens to be dwelling in at the moment. But JB is not always going to look like this. Thank goodness, right? <laughs> when we get, yes? How do you differentiate between the soul and the spirit? So that's a good question, and I, I probably should have taken the time to you know, add that in here. But the soul is that part of us that's born dead and communicates with God. So by faith, the soul is quickened, made alive, regenerated, reborn, born from above, John 3, and then once again made right with God, and we can have that connection to God. The spirit, did I say soul? The spirit is the part that communicates with God. The soul is the seat of our mind, will, and emotions, the, the real us, the immaterial part of man. So uh, our thoughts, our emotions, um, the, the immaterial aspect of man. So again, I think I misspoke a second ago. The spirit is that part of us that's born dead, needs to be reborn, and at salvation is reborn, and then therefore connected once again to God, is separated from God. So the soul and spirit are, are really the immaterial part of man. So we'll get into that at some point, possibly, if not in this series and another one when we talk about anthropology, the biblical doctrine of man. Uh, but the Bible teaches a bipartite 
nature of man, material and immaterial. Uh, soul and spirit are often used in the same context to refer to the immaterial part of man, uh, not a tripartite uh, aspect of man. Some like people the soul. Think, I mean, the soul would be the energy of the, that encompasses what makes this come alive. Um, I, I don't like the term energy. Um, just because the Eastern mysticism has hijacked it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the soul is just think of the soul as the real you, right? So you can cut off your arm and it does not affect your soul. You can lose 500 pounds and it doesn't affect your soul. You can die and it doesn't affect your soul. Your soul still exists. Now, it'll either exist in an eternal place of torment if the spirit has not been made alive and regenerated, or it'll exist in heaven. You know, Paul said to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with the Lord. So it's, it's the real you. It's who you are. So that when we get to heaven, I'll know you and you'll know me, but we won't look like this, but you'll still recognize me as who I am. Um, so it's the immaterial you, not bound by flesh and blood. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. All right? Flesh and blood is inherently earthly. And like everything on earth, it's tainted and corrupted by sin. And that's the reason that our bodies, the older we get, the more deteriorated they get. And eventually they're going to die if the Lord tarries is coming. You know, like somebody said, life's ultimate statistic is the same for everybody. One out of one dies, right? But that's the physical body. And that's what we're talking about here, physical death. Yeah. So when, is it a misnomer when someone says, uh, save your soul? And it, so your soul is going to be one or two places, depending on your spirit. Correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's not necessarily a misnomer. In fact, the Bible uses that exact phrase, save your soul. But remember, in the Bible, soul in the New Testament is psuche, and it just means life. In context, like with every word, it has to determine whether that's speaking of the immaterial part of life, the part that will live on in heaven or hell, or the physical aspect of life. Context always determines meaning. And I think I've shown you previously uh, several passages that use that same word, psuche, soul, to speak of the physical life. Uh, so it, de it depends. Um, you know, save your soul could mean eternally, make sure that you're, you're prepared to meet your maker, you know, you've been born again, but it can also mean save your physical life. Like with the ark, right? Wherein so many souls were saved. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's one example. We see it all over the New Testament. Um, in fact, in one of my uh, presentations, videos, I've got a whole list of them that I go through. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so nothing wrong with save your soul. Your soul is what's being saved, but it's only going to be saved eternally if you by faith have trusted in Christ, which then makes you your spirit alive, which your spirit is dead. Does that make sense? They're really connected. Think in terms, I wish I had a white marker board I could draw this out for you, but think in terms of material, immaterial. Every human being is made of a material and immaterial aspect. Mm -hmm. The material, it's easy to see. It's your brain, it's your organs, it's your physical aspects, the things made up of atoms that you can touch and feel. Your immaterial is your soul and your spirit. Your soul is the seat of your emotions, mind and will. The spirit is that part of you that is connected or disconnected to God. Okay? But together, they make up the real you. Everyone has a soul. Everyone has the spirit. That spirit, remember uh, uh, Paul said in Romans 8, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. Right? 
Because as a believer, your spirit's been quickened and made alive. And that way you can communicate with God. And the Holy Spirit can convict you and lead you and guide you and assure you and encourage you and comfort you. But for a lost person, they don't have that connection. So the only connection that they, then a lost person can make with the eternal creator God is the prayer of faith, trusting Christ for salvation, the expression of faith. So do we have two spirits, the self-spirit and then the... No, we have one spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and He takes up residence within us. It's capital S, and He's not our spirit. Again, Paul, Romans 8. God's spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, little s, so that we know we're a child of God. Okay, that's the little s spirit. Yeah. We all have a little s spirit. Yep, absolutely. And it's born dead. It needs to be quickened. It needs to be made alive. And uh, we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, but by faith we are reborn, and that's the part that comes alive and then allows us to be restored in our relationship with God. So, so it's that immaterial part of man, the soul and spirit, that is separated from God at physical, uh, I mean from the body at physical death. And we're going to look at a couple of passages here, uh, but... Uh, when does, what's the remedy for this? It's obviously the same as the remedy for spiritual death. Faith alone in Christ alone. So, uh, you know, if you are born again, then physical death no longer has any bearing on you. In fact, some people might not even experience physical death because the Lord may come back in their day and they may be raptured. So it's, got, it's, it's no longer an enemy to be feared. Think 1 Corinthians 15. You know, the last enemy to be defeated is death. So death, where is your sting, right? It's no longer something to fear. Uh, Psalms tells us that death in the sight of the Lord is precious for His saints, right? Precious in the, in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Death is no longer something that when we are separated from this body, we need to fear because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So physical death for believers Though it's a separation, it's, it's the golden key that unlocks the doors of heaven and get, gets us into our eternal home. And, you know, Sunday I'm going to be talking about uh, how Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And really, even though we are dwelling physically on this earth, we're just passing through. And the way to abide the ebb and flow of life and the tr- difficulties and trials of life is to remember that you are a citizen of heaven. That you're just a sojourner passing through. And so in that sense, when we die physically as believers, we're just continuing on with our eternal life, but in a different location now. A location not bound up by the corruption of sin and the problems of this world, but in a sinless place with our Lord. So so let's look at a couple of passages here. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 speaks of this physical death. It is appointed for men to die once. But after that, uh, the judgment. Or a passage we looked at a few weeks ago in James. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Physical death is what I take it it's talking about there. Because remember, James had, had already been uh, talking about uh, you know, how you should be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And that if you, uh, a man who does the word of God will be blessed in what he does. In fact, here's one of those passages that uses the word soul. 
see if I can find it real quick. Um, uh, therefore, verse chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Here meaning life. Notice he's talking about receive, and I talked about this before, it means to welcome and embrace. There's two words for receive. One means to take possession of. One means to welcome and embrace. It has to do with the attitude by which you take it. He says the word is already implanted in you because you're already a believer, but welcome and embrace it because in so doing uh, it will save your life. I've got a couple of other references here back to uh, Gary's question. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 verse 20. Uh, arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who have sought the young child's soul, talking about Christ, but translated life here, are dead. So this is when they were in Egypt and so forth. So you frequently see the word soul, psuche is the Greek word, used in both contexts. There are several others I could point out. But uh, back to James 1.15, the whole concept of James is to challenge believers to live out their faith in a godly way, because if you if you, you you may have faith that'll get you to heaven, but if you don't back that up with works, it's not going to help you avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin physically. Right? Sin's goal is to kill. Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to kill unbelievers because once he kills them physically, they're in hell. He wants to kill believers because once he kills them, even though their soul's in heaven, that's one less member of the, the, the Lord's army on earth to do battle in this spiritual warfare. Right? He wants to kill people physically. That's uh, Satan's goal. When he tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, it brought physical death into the world. And that's the reason they died. Now, they lived a lot longer than we did because the corruption of sin hasn't had 6,000 years to, to develop and mutate and so forth. Uh, but they ultimately died. And so James is talking here about the ultimate outcome of sin leads to death. And then another place that we see physical death referenced is in 1 Thessalonians 4. We're going to talk about this passage uh, Sunday during our Bible study hour as we continue to talk about the rapture. But he says, Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, what's he talking about there? Physical death. To be in Christ is to be a believer. It means you're positionally in Christ when you've trusted Him. If you're dead, it means you're physically dead and you're already in heaven. Because as Paul would later say in his letters to the Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So at the rapture, those who are spiritually alive because they've been born again, but physically died and are therefore in heaven and their bodies decaying in the ground, will come back with Christ, and we will meet them in the air at that grand reunion. Does that make sense? So everybody kind of see the distinction here between spiritual and physical death. Spiritual death is what means that we ultimately, if it's not remedied, will spend eternity in hell. Physical death, uh, in, and, and spiritual death involves separation from God spiritually. Physical death is separation of the soul and spirit from the body. The separation of the immaterial aspect of man from the material aspect of man. Make sense? All right, this is important to understand death as separation. It's going to have bearing on our understanding of atonement. But then there's eternal death. The Bible uses it 
uses the term death in, this, in, in, in an eternal sense. This occurs at physical death as well for those who have never believed the gospel. So if you die in unbelief, then you're really going to die twice, aren't you? Right? Uh, so if, you've heard me say this before, but if you've only been born once physically from your mother's womb, you will experience two deaths, physical death and eternal death. And uh, this involves separation from God for all of eternity. Okay. That's why we call it eternal death. And we'll look at these passages in a second. But again, the remedy is to be born again by faith alone. Those who are born twice, once physically of their mother's womb, and a second time spiritually born from above, like Jesus told Nicodemus, by faith, they will never have to experience eternal death. So look at what... Uh, Jesus said in John 8, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Okay. He's talking about physical death, but because you're still in your sins, you're going to also experience eternal death, which the book of Revelation refers to as the second death. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus refers to this as everlasting punishment when he said, and these, talking about the goats who've never believed in him, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So these first three are pretty well known. We, 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 you may not have really thought of them in this logical terms, but you certainly have understood them. Spiritual death, we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're made alive by faith in Christ. Okay. Physical death, just when you stop breathing and your heart stops beating, whatever. And eternal death is if you die physically but have never been reborn spiritually. Then you're eternally separated from God. So separated from God in a spiritual sense is spiritual death, and we're all born spiritually dead. And people today walking around who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation remain spiritually dead. Okay. Physical death, separation of the soul and spirit from the body. So that the body goes to the ground, the immaterial part of us, the real us, goes to either hell or heaven, depending on whether we have remedied our spiritual death. And then eternal death is separation from God for all of eternity, permanently, we could say. Uh, and that uh, happens again at death. So any questions about the first three? There are two more ways in which the word death is used relative to a person in Scripture. And before we get to those, we'll make sure there's no questions or comments about these first three. Yeah? In the sense that uh, spiritual and eternal are both separation from God, don't you, doesn't your spirit have to be separated for the eternal also? Well, it's, it's really, eternally there really has the sense of permanently. In fact, I might, I might change that. That's why I love doing the Bible studies because the questions and comments really help me see this in ways that maybe I hadn't seen it in the, my tunnel vision. But it's, it's eternal, meaning it's past the point of no return, uh, permanent. And so your spirit is dead and will always be dead, has no hope of, you know, uh, being reborn. Does that make sense? Well, I see them both as eternal. 
because the spirit is separated in both cases. Right, but spiritual death is not, it has a remedy. Okay. Uh, in fact, we, maybe we should say once you've experienced eternal death, there is no remedy. There is a way to avoid eternal death by faith alone and Christ alone. But once you've experienced it, you know, it's, it's unremedy. So spiritual death we've all already experienced, but it's not eternal. There is a remedy. So, yeah, I'll make a note. I think that's, that's probably, uh, once you get to this point, it's eternal. You, there is no remedy for it. But you can avoid it, which is kind of where I was going with remedy, by faith alone and Christ alone. Side note, the previous, I think it was Revelation 20 when you put up there and I asked you about this one time and I think you left me a voice message about, about the hypothesis that death is actually an entity. Why would you not, why would you need to throw an action into like a fire unless it was an entity? Because your Hades is. Yeah, death and Hades there is a metonym for all unbelievers at that point. And, and, and where they're dwelling. So they're personified. It's a person, It's a figure of speech called personification. That's why they're capitalized there. Death and Hades. So it's using death and Hades as the place where the Antichrist was cast a thousand years earlier, the false prophet was cast a thousand years earlier, the place where all uh, unbelievers are waiting. See, there's a difference between the lake of fire and the everlasting fire. All right, so the everlasting fire is the final place when all of creation, unredeemed, is cast into this place of eternal torment. There is a sort of a holding tank, if you will, that's variously referred to in Scripture as Hades, which really literally just means grave, but in context when it's speaking of torment, it's a kind of a reference to the ultimate place of hell. Um, in the Old Testament, Sheol, um, different terms like that, uh, again, lake of fire, that kind of thing. So really death and Hades there is just a, a metonym for all of unredeemed life. Ends up in, ever, in the everlasting lake of fire, yeah. Do you think God had to explain and educate Adam and Eve on what death was because they never seen it? That's probably a good question. I, well, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know. Um, I wasn't there. Um, but I think... You might ask Fred. Yeah, Fred, what do you think? <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Uh, but this, this is kind of the point. I think they understood whatever, what, what we now call death as separation. In other words, in what they heard was, in the day you eat of it, we will be separated. This walking with me, talking with me in the garden, this intimacy, this relationship of, of perfection that we have now will be marred and changed and corrupted, and you will be separated from that. I think that's the way they understood it. But yeah, I bet, I'm sure there was probably some, some uh, clarification going on, and, uh, but they knew that whatever it was, it was they didn't want it. <laughs> they liked things the way they were. So, All right, so let's summarize, and then we'll look at the last two ways death. Did someone have a question over here? I was just yeah. one, one Sorry. last thing to Gary's comment would be that eternal, eternal death is what happens when physical death meets spiritual death. Unremedied. Right. Yeah. So once you hit your physical death in a, in a state of spiritual death, 
it, it converts into eternal spiritual death. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. And I, I was just going to kind of summarize it, and I, I don't think I could have said it any better than that. So every human being, because of Adam and Eve and death being passed down through the blood, again, you don't sin, you don't become a sinner when you sin. You know, you're born in sin. Um, and that separates us from God. But there is, biblically, which is what we're talking about tonight, a remedy for that. And that's faith in Christ and His substitutionary atoning work on the cross. When we place our faith in the one who took our penalty, who paid our debt, uh, then we are made alive and we're no longer spiritually dead. So you can cross that one off. And, and this is kind of what I was getting at with the remedy, you can cross number three off. Because you, eternal death does not uh, have you know, any uh, stake over you anymore, right? You passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. Yeah, Sally. Okay, the way I'm seeing it is everyone's spiritual and physical death becomes eternal unless we're saved. That's right. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. Your spiritual death becomes eternal if you die in your sins, if you die in unbelief as Jesus warned if you do not believe that I am he if you don't believe that I'm the son of God the savior of the world I you will die in your sins and once you do that then you have you will experience eternal death there's no turning back why because again going back to the physical death Hebrews 9:27 it's appointed unto men to die once so this notion of people dying and coming back to life or dying and going to purgatory and being able to somehow work their way back into God's good grace. No, it's over. When you die, you, you, you face eternity. If you face eternity no longer spiritually dead because you placed your faith in Christ and were made alive like I did when I was six years old, I don't have to worry about second death. Uh, it has no power over me. Uh, you know, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't have it on the screen. But um, he's talking about, in this case, at the rapture. Look at verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Now I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm going to talk about this Sunday in Bible study. I've been working on this this week. That's why it's fresh in my mind. We shall not all sleep, meaning physically die. Sleep is a, uh, a, uh, metaphor. Me a metaphor, but it's particularly, a, what do you call it? Euphemism. Thank you. For uh, death, physical death. So we shall not all physically die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Sounds very much like 1 Thessalonians 4, doesn't it? For the trumpet will sound, the dead physically will be raised incorruptible, and we, those who haven't died, will be changed. So this physical body, whether it's in the grave and been there for a, thousand, a couple thousand years, or whether it's still living, will have to be changed into an incorruptible, glorified body because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Uh, and he goes on to say, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That's synonymous uh, parallelism there. He's uh, quoting this from uh, Hosea and also Isaiah. Uh, so death and Hades are just, again, synonyms. It's just a different way of saying the same thing. The sting of death is the sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death no longer has a sting. It's powerless. It's impotent, right? Over those who know the Lord Jesus. Because when we die, again, it's just a matter of changing clothes. We put off this old man, and we put on a new man, right? Um, but for an unbeliever who, as Jesus warns, dies in his sins, never having dealt with his spiritual death, never having been made alive spiritually, then death has quite the sting, because then it becomes eternal, and you are eternally separated from God. And not only that, but eternally tormented as a punishment or consequence for sin. So, you know, nobody can blame God for ending up in hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. God's doing everything He can to keep people out of hell. He can't do anything more than sacrifice His own Son for something He never did, paying a debt He didn't owe, and then having that same Son, the eternal Son of God, defeat death and hell when He rose from the dead, and then offer the gift free of charge to anyone who wants it. Come one, come all. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely. So if someone goes through their whole life and turns a stiff neck to the universal call of free salvation and chooses to die in their own sin, that's they've got nobody to blame but themselves. Yeah. What are the, and I don't want to hijack your presentation. No. But what are the verses of hope for babies who miscarried and babies that die before they're born again? Yeah, so, so they don't have eternal death. So we're going to get into that in this series, but um, the one and only condition for eternal life is faith. And God's character would not allow him to hold you accountable for something that it is not possible for you to exercise. So people that are mentally ill, that don't have the mental capacity to believe, right? Little infants, they, they can't believe. They don't. It's a mental exercise. Don't let anybody ever try to tell you that faith happens in the heart, not the head. The Bible uses head and heart interchangeably, and I can show you dozens of passages. You know, Proverbs, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, right? Head and heart are just the same part of the immaterial aspect of man. So that whole notion comes from a Calvinistic teaching that faith is a gift. You can't believe anything God has to force you to believe, right? That's not biblical. Faith is inherently intellectual. You cannot believe something without an intellect. You can't do it. Explain to me how you can believe something to be true or not true without using your mind and without thinking. Of course you have to think. So if you are incapable of doing that, then God's grace covers you. And, and we do have several examples of that in Scripture. For example, um, again, this is just examples. This isn't a theological text, but it's, I believe, historical examples that, that prove out the theological principle of Scripture. Uh, but when David's son died as a result of his sin, uh, God's, David said, why should I, I'm paraphrasing, but why should I continue to weep in sackcloth and ashes? Uh, he, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. 
Now, unless you thought David expected he was going to end up in hell being tormented for eternity, which he clearly didn't, uh, he knew that his infant child was in heaven. Um, so, again, it goes to the consistency uh, and immutability or unchangeable nature of God's character and his attributes. God cannot defy his own character. And so it would be unjust for God to require something of someone that was impossible for them to, to do. Now, you might think, oh, well, what about those who've never heard, right? Completely different issue. The Bible actually addresses that quite directly in Romans 1. That you've never heard the gospel is no excuse because you're capable of believing it. And the Bible says if you look around you at creation and recognize God's general revelation and respond to that, he will send special revelation and make sure you hear the gospel. So all you got to do is respond in faith. There is a God. I'm not him. And then he'll make sure that you hear the, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, right? So that's different. We're talking about people who cannot hear the gospel. And the best book on this, you probably know the book I'm about to recommend, that has ever been written. I can't tell you how many copies of this I've given out through the years as a, being a pastor for all these years. But it's called um, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And uh, you know who wrote it? You should get the rights to it and, and make sure it stays in print. Bob Leitner. Safe in the Arms of Jesus. She's, Grace Akers publishes uh, Bob Leitner's stuff written years and years ago, but it's an it's excellent uh, study. And then there's another one, and I forget the, uh, uh, the title, but it's by Philip Goodman that I was, uh, came in contact with uh, a few years ago, uh, and an ex another excellent one, but I, I think Bob Leitner is excellent, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. So the question is, what about those who can't believe, who are mentally incapable of believing? which is a factor of age and intellect, right? You follow me? So that's, that's my answer on that. Yeah. The unborn. Same thing. Every aborted baby is in heaven today. Now, again, a Calvinist is going to be screaming if they're watching this on the video, throwing things at it, um, because they believe that it's not your faith that saves you. It's God's election. And in fact, hyper-Calvinists would go so far as to say whether you ever believe or not is irrelevant. Because faith is just an involuntary, subsequent response that happens after you got saved. You got saved the moment you were zapped. And therefore, they extrapolate that out and say, in the womb, some babies in the womb are elect, some are not. The elect ones go to heaven, the non-elect ones go to hell. Because that's the determining factor, is election. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches consistently again and again, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, that faith alone is the one condition for eternal life. That's why I reject the notion of unconditional election. There is one condition, faith. 160 times in the New Testament alone, the Bible conditions eternal life upon faith. I mean, does, isn't this a condition right here? Uh, you will die in your sins if you do not believe. Sounds pretty conditional to me, right? Would you reject total depravity too? Because their meaning of that is you cannot choose God, right? Correct. So they don't they define total depravity as total inability. 
I define total depravity differently. We're going to get to that. That's one of the terms in this deep wells of salvation that I'm going to do. By the way, I've never done deep wells. That's a new approach to this, something I came up with to just keep it fresh. Uh, but one of the topics that I want to get to, and it's on my list, is total depravity. Total depravity just means that man, there's nothing within man that commends himself to a holy God. It does not mean he's not capable of believing the gospel. Why would God give us 160 commands to believe if we're not able to believe? And forced love is no love at all. And to a Calvinist, if you're elect, you have no choice but to believe the gospel. You couldn't reject it if you wanted to. In fact, it is an involuntary response to regeneration. Faith comes after regeneration, they say. The theological term for this is the ordo salutis, the Latin term meaning order of salvation. Calvinists believe that you are regenerated first, passively. You have no control over it. You do nothing. You're just walking along, non-elect. All of a sudden, boom, you're zapped, and now you're elect. And then, involuntarily, you believe, whether you want to or not. I think I'll believe the gospel, right? And God gives you that faith, right? You didn't choose to believe, right? We believe that faith is not an involuntary response to regeneration. It is the instrumental cause of regeneration. When faith meets the gospel, at that instant you're saved. So faith is the cause of regeneration, not the involuntary response to it. So they, their definition of total depravity is completely uh, false. And in my series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical, I... The, the whole first uh, DVD on that, or it's on our YouTube channel for free, I talk about, in their own words, how they define total depravity. And one of their favorite catchphrases is, dead men can't believe. Well, the problem is, with that is the Bible says something different, because the Bible says that we're all born dead spiritually, Ephesians 2.1, we've already talked about it, but it also says the way to be reborn and deal with that issue is to believe the gospel. Why would it tell us to do something that is impossible for us to do, right? So, and they base the fact that faith is a gift on a misunderstanding of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. They take the pronoun that and it to refer to faith. But grammatically, it cannot refer to faith because Pronouns in Greek have to agree in gender and number with their antecedent. And faith does not correlate with that. That is neuter, referring to our whole salvation. For by grace are you saved. That, by grace you're saved, is the gift of God, not faith. And so it just makes no sense. Uh, uh, and again, I know good people disagree with me, but I'm... The older I get, the less uh, likely I am to kind of give them a pass on it because the Bible's pretty clear uh, on that. It's not a fact in dispute. This is something that Calvinists came up with over the last 400 years, and it's become a system, and it's a lockstep system, five points, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, which we'll get to in this study of atonement, uh, irresistible grace. Again, you can't reject the gospel if you wanted to, and if you're not elect, you couldn't believe it if you wanted to. <laughs> Boy, I wish I could believe the gospel. I'd sure like to become born again, but I'm not elect. I, I have no choice. I can't, I can't believe. Boy, I really don't want to believe the gospel. I don't really like Christ. I don't want to have anything to do with Christ, but I don't have a choice. God forces me to believe the gospel because I'm elect. You know, That's the way it works out in the Calvinist scheme. And then the last one is perseverance. T-U-L-I-P, tulip. 
perseverance of the saints, which they believe, because God does it all, therefore, if you are elect, you will guaranteed produce good works. And if you're not producing good works, it proves you never were elect. Right? Yeah. I was going to say, what about the blotting out of names and stuff? Like in, in Psalms, David talks about he wants his enemies to have their names blotted out. Yeah. And what is, does, he, does like God have everyone's name in the book of life? And then when they, if they just don't believe, that's they blot it out at a certain point in time? Or what's, what's that all about? That's a great question. And coincidentally... I got an email today from a radio listener asking that very question, and um, so um, and I get this question a lot. You know, I actually write down. For years, I've done this. I write down my responses to emails and save them in a Word doc so that I can just go back and copy and paste, so I don't have to answer the same question from, you know, rekeying it in. But we're looking at Re Revelation three five. So if you want to turn there. Um, Revelation 3, 5. He who overcomes, and we'll close with this, so we'll come back next week and talk about the final two kinds of death. Because these first three are critical, and the other two are also important, but you, you have to really understand the relationship between spiritual, physical, and eternal. Uh, but Revelation 3, 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, what does that mean? Some people read that and, and, and it sounds like if you can have your name blotted out, I mean, if he says he won't blot your name out, it must be possible to have it blotted out, right? Doesn't that make sense, right? Not at all. This is a figure of speech called litotes. You spell that L-I-T-O-T-E-S. We use them all the time in English. Uh, it's when you emphasize a positive by denying the negative. So if I were to say to you, hey, not bad, Kelly, what does that really mean? It's good. It's good, right? Um, you know, uh, if, I, if I were to say, I mean, I can think of lots of examples, but um, whenever you, you use a, you deny a negative, you're emphasizing the positive, okay? Um, we see this in Scripture. In, uh, I think it's Acts 27, Paul says there was no small tempest that arose on the sea. What did he mean? It was a big storm, right? Or in, uh, in let's see, Hebrews, I think it's, it's chapter 6 for sure. We just talked about this in our series. I think it's around verse 19 where it says, God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. What does that mean? God is particularly just and faithful. In fact, is it possible for God to be unjust? So just because you deny something doesn't mean it's possible, right? God is not unjust. It's a, it's a litotes. It's a way of saying, man, God is powerfully just. And in the context here, this is what he's saying about overcomers. First of all, in Revelation 2 and 3, all the overcomers are believers. We know this from 1 John 5 when he says, this is that, that which overcomes the world, even your faith. So believers are overcomers. But here he's talking about those believers that are particularly faithful in the midst of persecution. And to them, he says, God will not blot out your name. And then he actually gives us a hint at what he means by that, Lytotes. But he says, he's going to confess you before my father. 
In other words, to when he says, I will not blot out, he's saying, I'm going to highlight it. I'm going to put a star by it. I'm going to underline it. You're going to be confessed and recognized and honored before God in heaven. So don't assume just because you know, it's got, I will not blot out, that it necessarily follows it's possible to be blotted out any more than it's possible for God to be unjust. God is not unjust. It's no small tempest. Not bad. Or you might say, that was no small feat. That's another English one. We Well, that means it's a great accomplishment, right? Guy, you know, we just watched uh, the, the, the Everest movie. Very emotionally heart-wrenching movie. If you haven't seen it, it's based on a true story. I would recommend it. But, um, you know, people that climb to the top of Mount Everest, one out of four make it, I'm told. Uh, that's no small feat. Well, what do we mean? It's a great accomplishment. I will not blot out your name. I'm going to highlight, I'm going to emphasize, I'm going to confess you before the Father. So the idea that some, somewhere along the realm in church history, someone suggested in writing that, well, that must mean that everybody's name's in the Lamb's Book of Life from eternity, and then, you know, you can be blotted out if you don't believe the gospel. That, that's, that's nowhere you find that in Scripture. It's a figure of speech. So that's repeatable in Revelation that he's claiming in, in, in Psalms? That, that same pattern? I don't know the Psalms passage uh, is using a litotes. What's the passage? 69.28. It says, May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. Yeah. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. Um, I mean, it's quite possible that that happened as a result of their unbelief. That yeah, I don't think it's a technical phrase. I think it's poetic. I think he's, you know... Could it be just David's understanding or lack of understanding of what being actually in the book of life means? Well, I, I mean, we've got to be careful about saying lack of understanding because he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. But again, I think book of life here is poetic. It's like, you know, when he says, I'm going to, you know, shelter you under the wings of the Almighty. It doesn't mean he's got wings. God has wings, right? Um, uh, so what is it, 69 what? 28. Yeah, he's just, it's a, this is a, uh, probably an imprecatory psalm, and he's bring, wishing and praying for God to intervene and bring judgment upon his enemies. And basically, I would paraphrase that, you know, let them die for their sins and die in unbelief. You know, I don't think he's literally picturing an eraser and a book and pages. Well, those were elected, but not anymore, because David asked for them not to be elected. <laughs> right, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, and it certainly doesn't go back to eternity past. But remember, in the Calvinist scheme, uh, they believe God in eternity past has a covenant. And he selected some to be saved and some to be lost. And nothing can change that. Now, I believe in election, but I also believe in free will. And the Bible teaches both. And I've talked about this before. It's a biblical antinomy. It's a biblical principle that seems contrary to logic. How can God elect and yet we have a choice? Don't ask me, I'm not God. I didn't say it, but God's Word says it. God's Word preaches election, and God's Word also preaches free will. Uh, but when you <laughs> camp out over here on the election side, you end up making man completely passive and having no choice as to whether or not he's going to believe or reject the gospel. And a gift, to be a bona fide gift, has to have an option of receiving it or rejecting it. Otherwise, it's not a gift at all. It's a compulsion, right? You know? If I, you know, if I, if I was a 20-year-old single man and I said, I'm going to, you know, I've got a gift for you. I'm going to, you get to be my wife. Come on. 
And she, wait a minute, I, I'm not sure I want to be your wife. Too bad, that's a gift for you, right? You get to, I love you that much, I'm going to force you to be with me. For, that's not a gift. Forced love is no love at all. Yeah. Correct. We're not puppets, exactly. We have God created us with free will. Just as He didn't force Adam and Eve to bite the apple, did He? Right? Then let me ask you a question. Now we're going to get into this next time. But did, did Adam's sin affect only the non-elect? Because this is the point Paul makes in Romans 5. The first Adam and second Adam. In Adam, all died the entire human race, and in Christ, the entire human race was redeemed. But not everyone receives that payment that was made on their behalf. This is the whole point of unlimited atonement. Christ died for the sins of the world, but only those who receive the gift appropriate the benefit of the gift, right? Yeah? What's your uh, biblical definition for elect? God cho chose in eternity past those who would spend eternity with Him in heaven. You know? so, so, basically, He just knew that they would be there, or He... No, you can't define election in terms of foreknowledge, because for something to be foreknown, it had to exist. Mm -hmm. And God is the only eternal being. So it's not like God just read somebody else's book and knows what's going to happen. He wrote the book, mm -hmm. right? So foreknowledge is completely separate from election. Foreknowledge does mean that God knows in advance, but election means He chose. That's what the word means, He chose. So, And again, I don't have a problem with that. I know a lot of my colleagues, I'm in a minority on this. I really am. A lot of dispensational, non-Calvinist people go to great lengths to redefine election to have only to do with Israel. And, and I just don't see it that way. And it doesn't bother me that election is contrary to free will because there are a lot of truths in Scripture that are contrary, and I just accept them both. So the, the problem with Calvinism does not rise or fall or hang on the issue of election. That's not the issue. The problem with Calvinism is their rejection of free will and their rejection of the fact that a person can either believe or not believe the gospel according to their own free will. They don't have a choice. That's the problem, and the Bible does not teach that. So, Well, uh, great. This is a good discussion. I hope it was helpful for you. We will um, continue with this idea of atonement. Uh, I want to leave you with the definition that we uh, started out with. Let's go back here. Remember, atonement, substitutionary atonement, Jesus paid for our uh, sins on the cross. He paid our sin penalty on the cross. And we talked about death, meaning separation, and we left off with just the first three of uh, five kinds of death in Scripture. And we'll come back and pick up there. And then, having defined death, we'll sp spend the rest of the session next week, hopefully, unless we chase a few rabbits, which is fine. That's the whole point of Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, but assuming we get through the rest of it, then we're going to look at some key passages that speak of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ on the cross. All right? Okay, well, thanks. You are dismissed.